once I sort of vet that operator and I know that this is person, this is someone I want to invest with from that moment on, I don't care about the asset class. I don't care about it. I don't look at most stuff. All I look at is the numbers. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, excited to have Litan Yahav. Litan, how are you doing today? I'm doing amazing, Todd. Thanks for having me on the show. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, a little bit about Litan. He is uh, a passive real estate investor, private equity investor, uh, Navy veteran, tech founder. He exited his last startup about eight years ago and and just went into doing this uh, the passive role. Um, you know, mainly syndications, other alternative assets, and and just been doing that. And ended up also building a new startup for planning and controlling wealth, uh, you know, his wealth, wealth of others for a company called Visor. So we'll dive in kind of to uh, why passive and uh, and then we'll look into this Visor. So what, Latan, why don't you take me through maybe a little bit more about your background? I'd love to know about the, the tech company that you exited and kind of dive in then. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. Well, you gave an excellent uh, brief bio about me, so I don't know if I can do it any better, but I'll, I'll try. So I'm I'm 40 years old, married, I have three kids, um, born in the States. Now I live in Israel. I've been here for many years, served in the Navy for six years, as you mentioned, and then went to school, studied law and business. And at the end of school, met this awesome guy. We founded a startup together. Uh, we were looking for like a business to solve, a business to build, a problem to solve, found ourselves in a very weird industry, uh, the diamond and jewelry industry. Hmm, interesting. Which we had no connection to whatsoever. But <laughs> okay, like, I was going to ask you. Like... No connection. But like, I don't know if you've ever been in like a diamond exchange, building office or whatever. It's insane. Like we walked into this building and Israel is, a, is one of the hubs for diamond manufacturing and trade. So it's basically, it's it, it's. Uh, Ramad Gan in Israel, it's Mumbai in India, Hong Kong, Belgium, Antwerp in Belgium, and New York. Those are like the five hubs hmm. where diamonds are um, traded, manufactured, uh, polished, and, and all that. Anyway, we found that the whole trade of diamonds was crazy. People had to ship diamonds around the world between each other and, and ins- inspecting them with the, like these loops and magnifying glasses. It was just crazy. We said, well, why can't you just buy a diamond online? traded between each other based on like a really high resolution image. And so we said, yeah, how difficult could that be? And we're not like me and my co-founder are not technological. Like we don't have a tech background. We're both like business operations, both of us, six, six years military, like not our background, but we said, how, how difficult could it be? And it was difficult, but it worked. And we managed to create a machine that photographs diamonds in 3d and enabled selling diamonds and trading them around the world without physically shipping them. And it went well, and it became the standard now for diamond imagery. So almost every diamond you see online is photographed with our technology. Uh, we sold that company back in 2015 and stayed on for a few more years. And 2018, we, we moved on. We made a nice exit. I can't say we made tens of millions of dollars, but we made enough. Uh, and at that point, sort of the next phase is of what do we do now, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So we can dive into that second. Does that make sense though, the background of the tech? <laughs> that does. It's it's 
wild though. You, so how did you figure out what was going on in the diamond industry? Did you, were you working in it? You weren't working in it. So what did you do? Like take a tour or something? Like how how did you even figure out this was a problem? Man, after the Navy, I worked as a sailing instructor. That's what I did. That was my job, teaching people to sail, right? But during during school, I was part of this entrepreneurship program funded by Sam Zell. um, And and as part of that program, you you sort of set off by building a team and then looking for a problem to solve with tech. And we're like, Mm -hmm. all right, let's just go meet with a bunch of people. And open our minds to what problems and inefficiencies there are in the world. And a friend of a friend took us around the Diamond Exchange here in Israel. And you walk into this building, you've never seen security like this before. But then once you go through the doors, it's like you're in the 50s. It's old fashioned, like people walking through hallways with suitcases full of diamonds and notes on doorways saying, I'm looking to buy these and these types of diamonds. I'm looking to sell and brokers. It's like crazy. And so we said, well, that doesn't make any sense. Let's see what we can do. And you just start to interview more and more people and understand how the industry works and why does it work that way? And because it's such like a traditional generational industry, it's like there is innovation, but it, it wasn't to the extent where people would think that you can do things differently. Like yeah. when we came in and said, why do you have to look the diamond under a loop? Like, why can't you just send an image of it? And they're like, and this was crazy. Or they're like, no, but I want to smell the diamond. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? There's no smell for a no, diamond. What's a, like, what's a diamond smell like? What do you mean? <laughs> There's no, anyway, so it's like, but but yeah, so that's how we read. And we're saying, well, this is, this needs to be disrupted. And so we, because we had the lack of knowledge, I think that what gave us, that, that's what gave us the advantage of like actually yeah, it, going to solve it. it. It's funny how sometimes that's the case. Like j- because you weren't in the industry, because you weren't used to it, you're like, this is weird. You didn't have the knowledge. It's like, we, this, something's got to, something's got to yeah. change here but everybody else that's been in the industry they're like oh that's just the way it is you gotta smell the diamond <laughs> like, exactly you can't smell hey, a rock <laughs> exactly you can't you just can't you, you can't there's no and yeah anyway there, i can go on and talk about uh, Sigoma, like sagoma that company for for hours a lot of interesting stories but yeah so that was that that rodeo um which was really interesting and really like a great experience um, yeah and, and obviously our kicked off our wealth so that was also good I want to know uh, some of the lessons you learned by growing that business. You know, so obviously you didn't, you didn't know what you're doing in the diamond industry. You weren't a tech person. Um, And so how do you go from, from that and be successful? Like that, that's, that's a, most people say insurmountable, like you can't do it. Right. So how, what was that mindset that said, yeah, we're going to solve this problem. And then, uh, you know, let's, I guess let's take through some of the experiences that you, or some of the things that you really took out of it. Well, first of all, we were extremely naive and extremely stubborn. And I think those are really two traits are important for an entrepreneur at that phase. Um, It's like they close the door, you go in through the window, right? That's like the, the strategy we have. It's like, there's no no for the answer. And and so like from the, from the get-go, it's like, all right, I have this co-founder. We're both like really good friends. We're both business operations guys. First step was, well, we need to find a tech guy. And I mean, that that was like, all right, what do you, what do, you do now? And there's a lot of founders like us that are in the same situation. These are like business people um, that don't have any technical background, but, and, but they want to build something technical. And then, all right, what do you do now? So you go and you look for a co-founder. 
um, that's that has a technical background. And and I, I'm not going to say anything that's to blow anyone's mind because we were just really lucky. And we found uh, we found this guy who's super smart, built a studio like a photography studio in his house. And we brought him a diamond and said, hey, can you photograph this in 3D for us? And we paid like 200 bucks and he did this amazing image that we then raised money based on that. Hmm. So we just took that image and we said, all right, we went to an investor and we said, hey, listen, all right, look at this. We can now, if, if, we, if we get some funding, we can build this. We can build a machine that takes these images consistently again and again and again. Hmm. We didn't have a machine here, right? But we had a smart guy that we thought we'd, we'd be able to convince him to leave his job and join us as a third co-founder. We had these companies that we're meeting with and say, all right, what do you think? And people were just blown away. Um, and so that was sort of the luck part of it. And there was a lot of obviously like, you know, just going and you just like grind it every day and you meet with someone and they're going to connect you with two other people. And those two people connect with two other people and just like networking nonstop. Um, and just like not taking that no for an answer because everyone's going to say you can't do it, especially in such an old yeah. industry. Yeah. So, yeah. So we were really naive and really stubborn. Like ask me today. As my second startup, if I would have done that today, no, not in this lifetime, never. <laughs> it's like, I want to look for like a big industry. I want to look for something that's super substantial. And anyway, so, but, but back then it's like, we wanted to build something. We found a problem that we thought we can solve. We found a person that can help us solve it with the set technical skills. And we went and got funding to build it. Um, and there's always going to be someone who's going to be able to help you build it. And there's always going to be someone who's going to help you fund it. It's just a matter of how many people you're going to meet until you find that, that person. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. But... What was a mistake um, that you made and, in, in, or like a growing pain uh, and how'd you learn from it? Um, so that's a good question. So I have two, two, uh, two, two stories, I guess I can touch on that. One of them is so early off we created these really high resolution images of diamonds like it's like you can imagine a tiny diamond just like a, a few millimeters in diameter and we blew it up on your whole screen and you can see everything in it like the color and the clarity and everything that's important to see in a diamond a polished diamond and sort of our mindset was this is always going to be a b2b play meaning it's going to be something that yeah. traders use to sell to other traders or traders sell to stores no consumer is ever going to buy a diamond like this online. But so, so what we did is like when we raised, we, we did some, like for one of our first like uh, agreements with the company was like, they wanted exclusivity in the consumer space. They wanted that every, they are the only company in, in the world that is allowed to present our images to end consumers. And we're like, yeah, that's all right. No one's ever going to buy this type of thing online um, from an end consumer perspective. We're going to focus on the trade that was a huge mistake. I mean, it wasn't a huge mistake because it was, I mean, we monetized that exclusivity and it was really good for us, but we didn't think, so we sort of blocked ourselves out from the get-go because we thought that it wasn't possible, which that was a mistake. Um, that's like one, one of them. Another. Was, the, was the money, the tempting part about it? Somebody said, Hey, you give us this exclusivity and and we'll give you this in return. And you said, well, it's not going to work anyway. So we managed to take the money or what, what was the. So, I mean, it was like, it was, it was money that, that grew exponentially every year that they had the exclusivity. Yeah. And so for us, it was like, the money is, is, is so good potentially. And we don't believe that much in this, in this sort of um, 
uh approach yeah. then then it's then it's good for us um yep. but turned again, out to be not, maybe the wrong the wrong well it turned, i mean everything turned out to be amazing anyway yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. i'm just saying that it's like one of those things that you said shit why do we sign this thing without really thinking it through beforehand yeah like, yeah exactly um another funny thing that happened this is like a mistake that was funny that we learned from it actually is so we had a we had a subsidiary in india so we had a company that we established in india because india not many people know is like the center of diamonds in the world almost every diamond in the world like 90 something percent go through india and are polished and, and cut in India. Hmm. And so we had a, a big operation in India. Um, and this really amazing manager that we just like were lucky to find. And after like year two of operating this, we defined him as our general manager of Segoma, India, which for us was like, that's a great title. And then he comes up a year later and says, well, how about I change my title to VP of Segoma, India? And I'm like, wait, isn't that beneath the general manager? Like, why would you want to change it to VP? Ah, whatever. No, no worries. Change it to VP. A year later, he calls me and he says, you know, Litan, VPs in India make higher salaries than, than what I'm getting. And so I need to get a hike in salary because of now I'm now because now, now I'm a VP. I'm like, shit, <laughs> he just he just played me. And then since then, like titles, even if they don't matter to me, they might matter to someone else. And there might be some sort of like hidden agenda in that in that request. But that's like <laughs> um anyway. Yeah, that's great. You got played. I <laughs> uh, love it. All right, let's let's fast forward. So you, then, then you, you sold the company and you're like, hey, now what do we do? And you started investing in real estate and private equity. What what was that decision like? Why why did you decide to go that route? And then uh, we'll dive into kind of how it's been working. Right. So. So when you sell a company, there's a lot of PR or there there tends to be some PR around it. And we got approached by a bunch of like wealth managers, financial advisors, private Mm -hmm. banks and stuff like that. And at some point we said, we can do this on our own. We know people, we can do this. We wanted to, we had an appetite for the more alternative world, not just stock markets. And, and so we, we have friends and those friends have friends and we just, just started to invest in real estate. And our first, me and my co-founders, our first investments were two single family homes in Ohio. Like these cheapest, like cheaper type uh, single family homes that we never seen, that we had a property manager there. And at the same time, we also put like uh, two checks into syndication deals in LP. Yep. Um, and the single family homes were a complete disaster. <laughs> it was like we... We, even though we had a property manager, it was like every other week there were issues, tenants that were breaking stuff that were not paying, property manager that needed our approval, municipality reaching out saying we need to pay taxes because whatever. It was just like this really like a lot of work. Yep. And at the, and at the same time, we have these like wholly passive LP investments that are generating more cash flow and have the higher, like higher potential. And we're like, wait. Why would we even want to do that? We're, we're not doing these single, like any more active stuff. We're just going to find really good people we can trust, invest with them as an LP and just passively do it. Because, I mean, we know, for, from our perspective, like we, we're tech guys. Like we can get into real estate, but that wasn't, that wasn't our passion. Our passion was to increase our wealth and do things we love, have the freedom yep. to do things we love, travel, um, build stuff. Anyway, so that, that's how the journey started. And and the cool thing in Israel is that every second person here does real estate abroad. Really? Um, yeah, because we can go into that. But but so so we know a lot of people that do real estate as either capital raisers or operators, 
in the US and in Europe. And so we had access to a lot of good people. Um, and so that's how it started. Hmm. Are you investing in real estate? Is it in the US or are you investing in real estate kind of all over the world or different areas? So I've, I've invested in, in Europe and in, in the US and in okay. Israel. Um, okay. And I had a I had an investment in Poland as part of Europe, which is not the Euro. And Poland, the invested, this was like a ground up development deal. And the returns were were amazing. But what I didn't take into account is that when the cash returns, it needs to be converted back into my local currency. And the, the rate mm. went like 20% down than what it was when I invested. Mm. And even though I made a great investment, like great returns on paper, because of the the, the foreign exchange rates, exchange. it wasn't that and so that's when I made a decision. I'm only investing in like main currencies, yeah, dollar and euro. That's it. Yep. And so it, since then, it's only been it's mainly been in the U.S. and some others in Europe. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. A lot less volatility in those exchanges, and probably probably have a better likelihood of if you make a great return to still make a great return. <laughs> exactly. And exactly. if not, I mean, I don't I don't have to convert it. I can keep it in the same currency. Sure. And reinvest sure. It. Like, what's the chance I'm investing in Poland? Like, close to zero. Um, but yeah, yeah, that makes sense too. Right. Um, what are, what are some of the things that you're really looking for? You know, you, somebody sends you a deal and so what, what are you looking for? What are the, what are the things that, uh, another LP should be looking out for when they're looking at a deal? Yeah. So I, I I've done a lot of these deals as an LP and one of the things I have, I've learned a lot of things that I should have asked and that I asked now. Or I make sure that I'm that that's that matches my strategy. Yeah. And and it's it's amazing how many LPs have no clue about what they're really doing. But for me, and this is just for me, it's always important for me to know the people I invest with. Yep. Um, the either the from a personal relationship, either through a mutual, really good relationship, like a good friend of mine or a really good friend of mine. Um I've also joined these like mastermind groups and um, one of them is GoBundance and, and sort of through that I joined and then invested with some guys in, in that in that group because it creates a really high level of integrity. But anyway, so finding those people I can trust, yep. usually that segues into the size of the operator as well. So for me, I personally, and this is not right or wrong, but personally prefer to invest with smaller operators. What, what, the, what do you mean by smaller? Like define that. Yeah. So I don't like, for example, I don't like getting a deal every other week. Hmm. That means that this operator has a lot of um, LPs. It means that they have a big team looking for these deals. Um, and it means that for me, I, I want to be, but, but it also means usually this operator has a lot of experience. It means they've done a lot of deals and that's why they can do more. That, that means they also have a very efficient way of vetting deals. Yeah, but you usually the larger the operator in that sense, the the terms tend to be less in favor of the LP. Hmm. From what I've seen, um, the splits, the waterfalls, all those stuff. Um, second, I feel like the more deals you do, it's only a numbers game. The higher ch one of those deals will fail, not because they're bad operators or because they're they're, they're lying to me. Just that's just a numbers game, and so I prefer to do for an operator to do less deals per year, yep. but those deals will be like amazing. 
and they'll go all in and make sure that me as an LP, I'll, I'll get what I deserve. So that's anyway, that's, but that's, and I know it's not, there's no right or wrong. And I know it's higher risk also to do those types of deals with smaller operators. Um, but that's just what I, I prefer. Um, and, and so there's that. And then, then there's some other like more practical questions. So it says like, what happens in a refinance event? Hmm. Uh, so I, I like invested. So I've invested in a bunch of these, like, you know, multifamily value ad type deals and stuff like that. And I've had some refinance events happen. And I've seen that each operator has different definitions for what happens in a refinance event. Sure. In terms of like what happens to cash flow after that. Yep. So like you put a hundred thousand in and then you're supposed to get you get eight percent on that every year. But then you, after year one or two, you get seventy thousand back because it was a refinance event. And so now you only have 30 in a deal, which is great. Like you got cash back. I mean, that's cool. But now what happens on the remaining 30? Like, do you get 8% on 30? Is there 8% and then is there like more on top of that? Because there is more excess cash, right? But yep. are, are they distributing that? Or are they not? Like what's, and so I ask that question, not because again, there's a right or wrong answer, because now when I go with the operas and I ask that question, I'll see that either, like if, if, if they're bullshitting me and they don't know what they're talking about, which is happens a lot. Or if they're going to go say, I, I, you know, let me check, which I like, or if they have a really good answer, which I also like. Um, but you'll see sort of like the response there. Cause I think most LPs never ask that question. Um, and so, and, and again, it's, it's not the matter what the answer is. It's the matter how they deal with the question, I think. Um, sure. So there's that. And, and then, and then, and so once all those are checked off for me, once I sort of vet that operator and I know that this is person, this is someone I want to invest with from that moment on, I don't care about the asset class. I don't care about it. I don't look at most stuff. All I look at is the numbers. For example, if I'm investing into a multifamily deal, I want to see the numbers make sense to me. If, yeah. it, if they do, I'm going in. If they don't, I won't. But I don't need any, to go. Vet. Are Sorry, there any go. red flags? Like, are there any things like you've seen and you're like, boy, that, that just doesn't work. Is, is there things that you see kind of more, maybe more commonplace? You're like, eh, yeah, I don't like that. I mean, I think that when they're like, you, when you go into these value add type deals, if the expected returns are either really high or really low, that's a red flag for me. Hmm. Um, I mean, like if, if it's like, I'm usually I'd say I'd say six to eight percent cash or six to ten percent um cash and cash. cash. Yeah. And then usually it'll be like a 70-30 split above the pref. Yeah. Um and the expectations are around 15 to 18 percent IRR. Yeah. Let's say that's like the I'd say common deals. But then yeah. if I get a deal where the number's like four percent cash on cash, the same like BC, I'm not talking about like an A type deal, but like BC value add type deal, four percent. And they're expecting, you know, I don't know, 10% IRR. I'm like, I, I I value that you might be very conservative. Yeah. That's that's fine. But if that's what I'm aiming for, I'll just put it in an index fund. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> scary. about it. Right. Yeah. Or if there's a value add type deal and they're giving me like, yeah, they're we're expecting 25% IRR. I'm like, yeah. And all right, you're which which moon are you living on? I mean, um, Anyway, and there's that. And then, and then the, the flip side is if I invest in a ground up development type deal that doesn't, that has low numbers, that's all it's like, because it's higher risk because you expect. Risk. Yeah. Um, so, so again, so that's what I, what I look for. Um, mm. the, the, that, that for me, I guess I w- would be a red flag. 
Yeah, I saw uh, a deal the other day that was pitched uh, to me, and it was like a 35 IRR. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> you know, if you get it, great. But why would you ever send that out to investors? Exactly. Right. Yeah. 100%. Also, there's another red flag, and this is this goes back to the structure of the, of the, of vetting the person, right? Because I didn't know this at the beginning, right? Because for me, there's a syndicator or a sponsor, and that's it, and they're they're the GP, and that's all I know, right? Yeah. And then down the road, sort of, I I learned that there are different functions within the GP. There's the operator, who's the one who actually sources the deals, gets the financing, and all that. And there can be a totally different person that who's the capital raiser or the syndicator or the, or the sponsor, whatever, who is doing the capital raising might be vetting the operator, which is fine. I'm not saying it's a bad. I mean, I think you need both. Like if you don't have access to good operators, then you need a good capital raiser. There's yeah. no nothing wrong with it. But like I'll 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 speak with someone and they won't even if if, if they're the capital raiser. First of all, they don't tell me they're capital raiser. They just say yeah, they're the, they're the syndicator and this is the deal and and their logo is on the paper. And I don't even know who the operator is. It's like, what? All right. Yeah. 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 I can um, see that. And so if there's not transparency. There's there. not transparency. Right. And, and again, I think capital raisers have value. Yeah. Because you trust them to vet the deal. And that's why you invest only in deals they bring to the table because they vet it. And they should get money. They should get paid for that for sure. But um if I don't need them, if I can reach the operator and I can vet the deal on my own, they don't want me. They shouldn't want me either, I think. Um, so anyway, that's sort of where I see it. Yeah, I think that that transparency part is is uh, so important. I mean, I, I've seen that too. A lot, a lot of them, they, they want to pretend. I don't know, pretend or they, I don't know what the reasoning, quite frankly, is behind it. So I don't want to assume something, but they they don't tell anybody who the actual operator is and they, they act like it's their deal start to finish and that's not the case. And they're raising money for it. Like that, that to me is a big red flag for sure. hundred percent. hundred percent. Do you invest in funds? You talked about, you know, specific deals. Do you invest in like the fund, the fund model? I haven't yet. And I know that, the, that there are a lot of operators that I'm moving to the fund model now. Yeah. Um, and I think there are two reasons that, by the way, they're moving to this model. And that's also one reason I don't like investing in the fund model that much. One is because when you raise a fund, um, all right, for, well, first of all, hard deal, good deals are harder to find, especially in the, in this climate, right? And so yeah. you don't want to lose a deal as, an L, as a GP because of fundraising. Yeah. And that's so that's a good reason to raise a fund. So you have like, you have liquidity to go and buy something like when it comes to the table. And I like it. I think that's good. But on the other side, there's a like a lot of operators have a cash flow problem now mm. because operators, especially the smaller ones, they, well, even the big ones, they make money upon closing the deal yep. and exit. Yep. And so, if there aren't if there aren't new deals and there's no exits, which aren't happening now and probably won't happen soon, then they're in a problem. They have a problem, right? In terms of like their own personal cash flow or their business cash flow, and so the fund model allows operators both to have that liquidity to buy deals, but also the fund model has a management fee within it yeah. and they get paid from the fund. And so I feel like, I'm not saying for everyone, but I think there are some operators out there that went to the fund model because they need the cash flow and also because mm -hmm. they need to close deals fast. But 
Yep. I'm not saying everyone's like that. I'm just saying I still haven't gotten around to uh, making sense to invest in a fund model because I think I think good operators can find good deals yep. and, and and they'll they'll be able to raise the capital. Um, but and uh, anyway, so I have not done any funds to your, to your question yet. Yeah, I asked that because it, we've we've looked at doing them too, and we have some of the similar hesitations. Not the 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 hesitation is well, if we do a fund, we kind of feel like we're obligated to to find deals. And what if there's not the the right deals to find? Are we going to get a little more laxed on our underwriting and just force deals through? Like we don't we don't want to do that. We don't plan on doing that. So that's that's one of the big negatives of potentially having a fund. But one of the positives is if the market does take a, take a dive and there's opportunities where we can come in and take over receivership and stuff like that, you need, you need that money quickly. Right. And if we already have, you know, $20 million, $50 million of access, hundred million, whatever it is of access, and we can get on that deal and close it within, you know, 30 days or less that puts us in a big advantage where, you know, those who don't have the fund, they just can't, they can't close those deals. So that, that's 100%. where it's like, okay. I which, think that's, a, I, 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 and I love that. And I think that's, that goes down to point number one. And I've heard of operators t building, like they've, they've built funds that aren't really a fund. It's a fund in terms of the commitments, right? So yeah. if I'm an LP, I'll commit. So let's say you want to raise a, a, I don't know, $10 million fund, but you, you won't, make it you you will you will not sort of get paid yeah and will not call for money until you have a deal until but the deal comes but i commit to transferring money to any deal to bring to the table within 14 days for example yep um, and that makes sense that's like a win-win and i understand that um but then obviously there's a lot of trust like all right you just need to make mm. i trust you're gonna bring really good deals to the table and you're not gonna go like and and just like you know ooh, Again, this goes back to trust, but, but if you have that trust, then it doesn't matter. But if you don't, then I'm going to have to think, wait, is he just going and buying a deal now just because he needs to raise, like you said, he needs to raise the money anyway. So yeah. I understand that. I think there is merit in that. Um, and and it makes sense. Uh, what else? Anything else uh, or any mistakes maybe or anything that you want to add to this uh, passive investing conversation? Yeah, so I mean the the whole aspect of passive investing for me is keeping it passive right um i, I can give you an example of this like my mindset and how i think passive investors usually should think so i had an operator who we invested it with in the three-story building in brooklyn and the, the plan was buy this building renovate it and flip it for 30 percent within a year and after a month, he reaches out to us after we acquired it. He didn't even finish like stripping it. He 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 calls us with an offer. He says, "Listen, I just got an offer to to sell it and make ten percent profit, hmm. like for all for all of us." And he asks us like, "What do you guys think I should do?" And we're like, "Listen, it's your call. Do not ask us. We don't know the market. We don't understand the deal. Good. We trust you. Make whatever decision you want. We're we're with you." And he ended up selling it, and we got. We made ten percent after a month, wow. which which return. Which like on the one hand it was amazing. On the other hand, yeah. well, I mean, now you have good problems right now. Where do I deploy <laughs> yeah. money? Um, but but that but so like we really try to keep it passive as possible and investing in people we can trust. Like that's also why we founded our current startup, right? Because we just it, it turned out to be 
that these passive investments became more active to manage. Like I get an email from an operator with a, a quarterly distribution statement or an update. And I'm like, shit, when did I invest in this? How much did I invest? Um, <laughs> and then the money will come into my account. And these are good problems to have, right? I can't complain, but it's like, I want to, I, I found myself like going through documents and emails and wait, how much, and, this, and what was the distribution? And then when I remember, that's cool. But then two weeks later, it, it reaches my bank account. And I'm like, again, wait, what's this money that came into my bank account? What is it related to? Yeah. And so, so we, we built our own platform, like to automate that thing for us. Right. That was, that was the objective of, of what we did. But anyway, that's just like keeping passive investing passive for us. Well, that's perfect. Perfect transition. Cause I do want to talk about the, the I do want to talk about visor and kind of what you guys are doing there. So explain uh, what you built. Uh, so everybody understands what exactly it is and how it can be used. Right. So, um, so visor is a platform built for people like, like, like me. So we built this for us so three years ago, me and my co-founder were like our, our spreadsheets are too yeah, crazy and breakable and too much aspect with bank accounts and stuff like that. So let's build ourselves a piece of software to automate that whole process. And then a bunch of friends wanted it as well. Yeah. In the world, wait, there may be a whole business here. And so we, we built this platform that enables the automation of collecting all the information from your emails, from your documents, linking in your bank accounts, investor portals, and all that. And then giving me a clear overview of what I have now, what I had in the past, and what I expect to have in the future based on all that, all, all my different information. Not just like the, the, the private investments, but the public ones as well. Everything, you know, startups, crypto, mm. uh, private equity, really, everything. So you could plug in all your, your stocks and all that kind of stuff too? Everything. Everything. Yeah. So, I mean, imagine most people know Mint or personal capital in the US, right? So those are like platforms for like managing everything in one place. But once you get it to that level of complexity where you have LP investments, you have startup investments, you have yeah. the more, then you have to sort of, in, in addition to that, also maintain a spreadsheet yeah, and then documents and then tax returns becomes a nightmare. And so that's sort of like what we try to create like Mint or personal capital, but for people like us. So aggregate everything in one place, understand what I have. We have this sort of like, feature we call the magic box, which is just a drag and drop ability to throw in any type of financial document. And we'll translate that into data, up create new assets or updating existing ones in the platform. You, you'll then link in your bank account and then sort of we'll um, automatically identify transactions in your bank account and link those transactions to investments to update the performance automatically. So just like do all that stuff and and then project cash flow and stuff like that. But there's, there's a lot of things. In, the cool thing is what we want to launch, we're going to launch in a month, which is not just showing you what you have as an investor, but what other people are investing in. Like which Interesting. real estate, which like real estate syndications are people investing in? Hmm. Anonymously, right? But how much money yeah. has gone into each of them? How many investments have people done? And so I get, cause it gives a lot of transparency into this like private investing world, right? Yep. Where no one has access to anything. Um, and so, which is maybe we, one of the bigger problems, right? Nobody has access to these syndications. Nobody knows what they are. Uh, and so you're just kind of like, it's, it's word of mouth. It's all, that's all it is. It's word of mouth. And it's like, we don't know what's out even out there most of the time. Yeah. I mean, and, and, or people listen, you know, I mean, people go and listen to podcasts yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or go on like, you know, forums or join mastermind groups, go to events, right? That's word of mouth, right? Because yeah. investing is hard. It's hard to source deals. It's hard to vet deals. It's right. hard to track deals. It's hard to do all of that. 
Um, and we're trying to simplify the whole process in addition to everything else. Love it. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm just looking quick here. I mean, we're, we're on it. If anybody's on YouTube, they can see it, but um, you know, you can see obviously your net worth, your overview, IRR, cash on cash distributions, commitments. You can see what your expected cash flow is going to be, you know, um, yep. your Everything. trend lines. Yeah. Really cool. So I mean, we can really understand what, what our money's doing, capital calls, yeah, annual, annual distribution, a lot of a lot of good stuff here. So it just yeah. simplifies the whole process. And you say, I mean, you can add everything in here, um, which is that's that's really cool because my investments, you know, I've got I've got my multifamily in a platform, then I've got you know, I've got a, some some startups that I did. They're like a crowdfunding platform. Then I did a couple startups that are just on spreadsheets. Then I got. <laughs> And of course, then exactly. you've got your, uh, you know, your stocks over here and your Bitcoins in another platform and or crypto. And it's like, man, I mean, just, just imagine, imagine just God forbid, so even something happens like to you, like what's what happened? Like who knows where all your stuff's at? Uh, uh, yes, that's a problem. That's actually, <laughs> a, a, I, I think about that and lose sleep over that. Cause that's a problem. Like I don't, if I died, like. I don't know that my wife would have access to all of my stuff. Yeah. And then we got money out there floating around that she doesn't have true access to. So, so, so it's, 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 there's so many aspects of this that we think bring value to people like us. And, and, and we, we, like, we're super passionate about it. And mm. um, that's, yeah. this is really cool. Thanks. Appreciate it. So what, what else should people know about visor uh, visor.com? It's visor. Uh, it's visor.co.co. Visor. I, yeah. I, I said that because I wanted to make sure I didn't say .com. And then I said .com. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all right. Looking I mean, right at it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, I can also show you if you want, but but we have like another cool, like the cool aspect of that, the community layer of it, which we're super like excited about of, of sort of people sharing anonymous information with other people based on their actual investments in, in, in the private markets, but everything like essentially even showing like where, which ETFs are people buying, right? Which, yeah. um, which sort of like crowdfunding websites are people using to invest through like what platform, everything. Um, and, and so there's a lot of, a lot of interesting and cool stuff there. I love and, it. I think uh, Latan, I, I think that would be a really cool thing to do. I think we should set up like a webinar if you if you'd be up for it, and we can run through this because I think this is a really cool tool for a lot of people. I know I've got a lot of investors that'd probably be interested in it, and I know there's a lot of LPs out there that would be very interested in something like this. So if if you're up for it, I think we should schedule something, get it out there, and uh, and let people just see what you got here. Yeah, man, for sure. I'd love to. Happy to. That's cool. Um, okay. Man, uh, we have to wrap up. So I'm gonna transition us to our last Thank couple you. questions and and then we're gonna wrap up. So um, what's a favorite book that you can recommend to to listeners? So I know I know you said sort of like a unique something, like a u- unique book. I don't know how unique this is. I assume it's not, but it's just like the best book that I've read. And I mean, the best book that I read, read recently, yeah. um, which is called Never Split the Difference. Oh, it's Chris a great Ross. book. Yeah. Um, 
I actually like li I listened to an audible audible and I listened to it twice. Like I finished the first time and then I just like immediately began listening to it again. Yeah. I just I think it's a really good book. It's a um, great book to listen to, isn't it? Because he, he like it's just the story is like so good there to yeah. listen to it and like hearing just his his tones and the way the way he says like so it's it's a great book to listen to. It is. Um so that's like uh, that I think a really really good book. And I think negotiation skills yeah. is probably one of the most important skills in life. Mm. Um, like I try to, like I have three kids and I try to already now, like they are eight and six and well, the, the one-year-old probably doesn't, doesn't much, but the older ones, like I'm like, always try to work on like, because you like everything you do in life is negotiated. Everything. Um, yep. So, yeah. Yeah. Love it. Um, all right. Last question. What are your three pillars of wealth creation? So um, passiveness, obviously, for me is key. Um, I, I think for me, what my pillar for wealth, one of the, like the second one isn't about generating wealth as much as it is generating cash flow. Um, so I don't really care about net worth as much as I care about getting ongoing cash flow because it doesn't matter how much you're worth if it's all locked in somewhere and you can't do anything yeah. with it then yeah good point so for me, it's, it's cash flow um and the third and the, those i guess were more philosophical but the third is just like remembering the objective and the mm. objective is not generating wealth right the objective is like doing things that matter in life and for me that's experiences with my family and friends um and so like because you can get into this rat race of just like oh i reached 1 million now i want to reach 10 million now i want to reach 100 yeah. million like what's the what's the objective here so yeah i'd say passive cash flow and remember the objective so that's i love that i love that yeah it, especially the objective man i mean that's so powerful that the, you're right a lot of us get ca caught in that puffing your chest up, whatever you want to call it, like, and focusing on that next step. But what's it, what's it all for? Like, you want to make sure it's for something. Um, there's a purpose behind it. So cool. Uh, well, this is, this has been fantastic. How can our listeners get in touch with you to learn more about what you got going on? Yeah. So I'm pretty available on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Litan Yahav, or, or you can drop me an email, litanadvisor.co, V-Y-Z-E-R.co. Pretty, I, I'm happy to talk with other LPs or just anyone interested in connecting. Love it. It's on again. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Uh, been a lot of fun and uh, I'm looking forward to doing this webinar. We got to, we got to hook that up. So I'm going to, I'm going to be right. sending you an email. We're going to figure that out uh, coming up here. So take Sounds care. Good. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe, uh, give us a thumbs up, go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. Your rating and review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to venture D 
VentureDeepProperties.com, VentureDeepProperties.com, and download our free ebook on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and, and also, look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go up to coachwithdex.com and check that out and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.